welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Simon Fishburne, Editor-in-Chief. Steve Usden, Washington Editor. Virginia Lee, Associate Editor. This week, we'll bring you up to speed on last week's meeting at FDA to discuss COVID-19 vaccines, as well as the latest on monoclonal antibodies for COVID-19. But first, we want to turn to finance. We have Virginia here with us. She was editor on our story about the return of SPACs. Virginia, what's a SPAC and why are we seeing so many of them right now? A SPAC is a special purpose acquisition company, which is a publicly traded shell company that's designed to acquire and take a private company public without having to go through your typical IPO process. A SPAC usually has a two-year window in which to find a target company and close a deal. Investors in a SPAC are able to pull their money out at any point before a deal is completed. Now, this type of vehicle has been around for decades, but they're making a comeback right now. We've seen at least 21 SPACs formed this year that are targeting a merger with a healthcare company. They've collectively raised about $3.8 billion so far. We've seen four SPACs announce healthcare deals this year. Going public via a SPAC is much faster than the typical process, which involves raising a crossover round, doing a roadshow, doing your IPO. That can take a year or two. Through a SPAC, a biotech can raise the equivalent of a crossover round and an IPO in a single deal within a few months. With so much general uncertainty right now, it's quite attractive for a company to get a deal done quickly. And for investors, there's less risk since they can pull their funds at any time before a deal closes. Virginia, I first heard that SPACs were going to be big this year in, say, March. And I have continued to have eye rolls over this. Oh, SPACs again. Maybe you can first of all tell us why the eye roll, because I think they were big in the mid-2000s and went away. And is there any reason to believe that they're here to stay or that it's different this time? Right. So SPACs of the past haven't performed that well. They've historically been a last resort option for companies looking to go public if they weren't able to do so the usual way. They've traditionally been sponsored by the subset of hedge funds that invest in SPACs to gain access to warrants that come with IPO shares. And these allow them to buy larger stakes in the merged company at a discount. But these investors weren't typically interested in being long-term investors in the company. So what's different today, particularly for these life sciences SPACs, rather than being backed by these SPAC specialists, they're being backed by blue chip specialist investors, MPM Capital, 5AM Ventures, Foresight, EcoR1, just to name a few of them. The motivation is different for these investors. They're not just in it to gain access to warrants that could bring value in the future. They're really here to bring companies to the public markets faster and be long-term shareholders. And it also gives them a little bit more control over how big of a stake they get in the public offering. Now, whether they're here to stay or whether they're just a trend is going to depend a lot on the performance of these early SPAC deals. And that's something we're not going to see right away. What types of companies benefit most from going public via SPAC rather than a traditional IPO? SPACs are most suitable for companies that have not yet raised a crossover round. They have the most to gain in terms of an efficient path to the public market. It's also best for companies with a management team that has a good track record, so they don't need to take as much time to establish those investor relationships. A good example of this is Nuvation, which raised $644 million last week through a reverse merger with EcoR1 SPAC Panacea. That was the biggest healthcare SPAC deal this year. 
that company was founded in 2018, raised an enormous Series A round last year. Its president and CEO, David Hung, formerly led Metivation. He has a long track record and is known among investors already. They have a big cancer pipeline with six programs that are soon to enter the clinic, and this gave them a way to raise a significant amount of funding quickly. The first one that really caught my eye was Tony Coles took Cerevel public via SPAC, and you know, obviously a big name there. It certainly suggested to me these might be different than they were back in the day. Are there any downsides to these types of deals? The downside is that this might limit post-market performance and valuation in a hot IPO market like the one we're seeing this year. Companies listing are jumping double digits at the gate. And because there's less outreach to investors in a SPAC merger, you might not necessarily see that kind of upside after going public. That said, these deals are still pretty fresh and we're just going to have to see how they perform in the aftermarket. Yeah, it certainly continues to be uh, the best IPO uh, year on record. Isn't that the case? I think we've seen about $16 billion raised by NASDAQ companies alone more than ever before. I think the previous high water mark was the year 2000, and we're well beyond that at this point. I think it's just worth saying that the story Stephen Hansen wrote last week on SPACs has some really good statistics in there, some data in there about how many and how much money has been raised. I think he also lists the companies that have participated in SPACs this year. So just one question, Virginia, you have said we'll have to wait to see how they perform. How long is that thread? What's the sort of timeline that is it really something you're just waiting for them to fail? And then you would say it doesn't work? Or is there a timeline at which you could say, okay, this was a success? I think what investors have told us is that we'll get a better idea of how these are doing in the next year or so. All right. So, Jeff, you can put that on the podcast for this time next year. Let's check in on the SPACs. It's back to the future, baby. All right. Let's turn to Washington. Steve, you had another busy week last week. FDA's Vaccines Advisory Committee met to discuss COVID-19 vaccines. The meeting was mainly intended to reassure the public that career staff at the agency will make decisions about vaccines and will not be influenced by political preferences or timetables. A second priority was to bring companies and the public up to speed on FDA's thinking about criteria for authorizing or approving COVID-19 vaccines. The most important advice the committee provided was to strongly urge vaccine sponsors to avoid unblinding phase three trials for as long as possible. Steve, how did it go? It was a long day. It was eight hours. Six hours of it was taken up with presentations, only about two hours of discussion by the committee. Some of the discussion was really not very useful. There was a great deal of talk about whether or not FDA and the companies had picked the correct endpoints for phase three trials. That ship has already sailed. You know, those trials aren't going to be changed and they're not going to be done again. So I don't really know what the point of that discussion was. I think there are two take-homes for me from it were, one, there was a great deal of concern on the committee about whether there needs to be more safety data for vaccines that are based on technologies that have never been used before, that have never been licensed before, really addressing the mRNA vaccines. 
from Pfizer and Moderna, which are likely to be the first two. The FDA has said that it wants a median of two months of safety data for a vaccine. Committee members were okay with that for most vaccines, but there were quite a few of them who said that they believe that the amount of safety data should be greater for mRNA vaccines, not because they know of any particular concern, but just because they haven't been used before, and these are going to be used in potentially tens or hundreds of millions of people. The other big concern was about whether trials will be unblinded. Before the meeting, Pfizer said that their intention is to offer patients who have been on their trials the opportunity to know whether they received the vaccine, the active vaccine or placebo, and if they got the placebo, to give them the chance to get the vaccine prior to the end of the trial. The committee was adamantly opposed to this. They really want to see these phase three trials continue as long as possible. Really, they're, they're going to be very reluctant, I think, to grant emergency use authorization or to recommend emergency use authorization if they believe that the companies are going to intentionally unblind the trials early. So one of the things that came up at the meeting and that I understand that FDA Commissioner Hahn is considering is the possibility of, rather than granting emergency use authorization, using expanded access, which is otherwise called compassionate use access, to grant early access to vaccines, if there's a possibility that doing that would make it less likely that trials would be unblinded. So Steve, do those companies have to make any commitment to the unblinding? I think the advisory committee is going to press any company that comes before it on what their plan is to ensure that the phase three trials are going to continue. Because remember, the first emergency use authorizations are likely to be based on interim analyses of ongoing phase three trials. The premise is you're going to get good data after a short period of time, after a certain number of events have, have happened, that's going to be good enough. You're going to go to the FDA, you can say, we want emergency use authorization. If FDA grants, it's going to be contingent on the companies completing the trials and going on, hopefully, to apply for a full BLA, for a full licensure. If the companies are coming to the FDA or coming to the advisory committee and saying, look, we've gone this far, we've gotten the interim data. We're going to unblind the trials. We're never going to learn anything more about it. It's all over. So the advisory committee has made it quite clear. They're not going to recommend approval based on that or authorization based on that. But is it still for other companies that aren't yet in phase three, just going to make it really hard for them to recruit? Everything that I've mentioned is about trials that are already ongoing. There's a real question about once emergency use authorizations have been issued, how companies that haven't even started their phase three trials would do it. Basically, I think that once an emergency use authorization has been issued, that vaccine will become the standard of care. And new phase three trials are going to have to be run as non-inferiority trials against the vaccines that have already been authorized. Anyway, that's one of the things that FDA suggested might happen. If that is the case, it's going to be extraordinarily difficult to run new phase three trials because a non-inferiority trial has to be enormous, bigger than would be feasible. The only way that it could be done would be if you could find subpopulations or geographic areas where there hasn't been anything approved or authorized, and you could still do a placebo-controlled trial in those subpopulations or in those areas. We did have some data coming out last week about age differences in responsiveness to the trials. So could you imagine a vaccine going forward 
saying we think we're better in a certain age, let's say elderly age population and carving a path that way. Yeah, that, that's what I mean by subpopulation. Right. The, the thing about that would be the subpopulation would have to be a population that either wasn't included in the emergency use authorizations of other vaccines or that did particularly poorly compared to the broader population in order for that kind of a strategy to work. I think that the main thing is that there's still a lot of uncertainty about how all of this is going to work. You have to think about the bigger picture, not just getting something authorized as quickly as possible, which I think everybody wants to have happen as, as quickly as it can be done safely, but then also thinking about how do you do it in a way that doesn't make it impossible to one, learn better characterize the safety and efficacy of what's been authorized and to continue to learn about new vaccines because everybody agrees there's going to be a need for multiple vaccines to be authorized and ultimately approved. So Steve, does this mean that this advisory committee meeting will meet on each EUA application? Yeah, FDA is committed that they're going to bring each EUA or BLA to the committee. Interestingly, they haven't said what they would do about expanded access, but I assume that they will also bring that to um, an advisory committee. The FDA, really, they've they're bending over backwards. They're doing everything they can to try to assure the public that every decision about COVID-19 vaccines is going to be made in a transparent way, and that it's going to be career scientists uninfluenced by politics who are making these decisions. And will it be the same committee members that met last week? Yes. Sounds good. Well, your other story last week, Steve, looked at the state of play for COVID-19 monoclonal antibodies. FDA could soon grant emergency use authorization to one or more. I think the front runners are Lilly and Regeneron. Is that right, Steve? Yes. I think FDA is likely to issue emergency use authorizations for monoclonal antibodies probably as early as this week. That's what a senior HHS official said last week. And the two that have been submitted are from Regeneron. That's the one that President Trump got. And from Lilly, that's the one that Chris mm -hmm. Christie got. But Steve, you flagged that even though this is potentially very good news and could keep hundreds of thousands of Americans out of hospitals, the announcements may mark the start of yet another round of pandemic pandemonium. Why is that? It's really about how they're going to be deployed. The Trump administration has made the decision that they're not going to have a national strategy for deploying monoclonal antibodies or any other therapies. They're going to give them to the states and leave it up to the states to figure out how to deploy them. It's not obvious how you do that with monoclonal antibodies. If you think about it, this is an infusion that's going to take between one hour and three hours. The people who are going to be benefiting from this the most are going to be people who have moderate to severe COVID-19 symptoms. You don't want those kind of people in infusion centers where people are getting infusions, for example, for cancer or autoimmune diseases. You don't want them in emergency rooms. It's going to have to be some place where they can get this infusion safely, where it's going to be safe for them, but also where it's going to be safe for healthcare workers and for other patients. That's not an insurmountable problem. I would argue that if we were living in South Korea, it could get solved in a week, but we're not living in South Korea and it's going to take a lot more than a week to figure it out. When the monoclonal antibodies are first approved, there's going to be a scramble to figure out how and where they should be administered safely. You would have thought 
since we've had months and months to think about this, that it would have been worked out, but it hasn't been worked out. One of the things that Mark McClellan, a former FDA commissioner and former head of CMS, told me is that he's worried that the access problems for antibodies are going to exacerbate the economic, geographic, and racial inequities that are already a hallmark of COVID. So I wanted to ask you about that, Steve. Maybe you can just spell out, because that's quite alarming. We know that COVID has had a disproportionately bad effect on racial minorities in many countries, including in the U.S. So why is that a particular vulnerability here? So basically what Dr. McClellan said is that the disparities in outcomes for COVID-19 so far have been related to people's exposure to the disease and to their comorbidities. And what he's saying now is that with the antibody rollout, there is likely to be layered on top of that differences in access to life-saving therapies. So the COVID-19 monoclonal antibodies, at least at first, are probably going to be administered in the large academic um, healthcare centers or in the large hospital systems, the ones that are better funded and that are in urban areas, people who are living in rural areas, people who don't have good access to healthcare, people who don't have somebody who can drive them to the infusion center and take care of them while they're there and then take them back home again. All these kind of people who are distrustful of the medical system, they're gonna have less access to these therapies. So they're gonna have worse outcomes compared to people who do have access to the therapies. Now, is anyone working on solutions to that, Steve? There are people who are, of course, Mark McClellan, for one, his center at Duke, the Duke Margolis Center, is working with the National Governors Association to try to solve some of these problems. Some of the big healthcare systems, Geisinger and Kaiser, are trying to develop plans for it. The problem is that the places where this is most needed are the places that are least prepared to solve the problem. It's really needed where the pandemic is raging, places like the upper Midwest, where hospitals are overwhelmed. Those are the hospital systems that have the least capacity right now to set up something new. And those are the ones where it's really going to be needed the most. There really is a potential for a kind of of tragedy here where there's going to be therapies that are highly effective, but it's going to take a long time to figure out how to get them to people. And people are going to um, be hospitalized. People are going to die unnecessarily because these therapies haven't been deployed properly. I'd like to end on a positive note, but that's the sobering reality right now, I'm afraid. That is all we have time for this week. Remember that registration is now open for our seventh BioCentury Bay Helix China Healthcare Summit. This digital event runs from November 9th to 13th and includes strategic panels, one-on-one virtual meetings, company presentations, and two conference reports from our partner, McKinsey. Register today to get immediate access to our pre-event program, including BioCentury Business Intelligence on China Biotech, scene setter presentations on China financings and deals, and four pre-event webinars starting next month. You'll also get to enjoy Steve and Simone are both hosting panels, as well as I will be moderating a panel on the Korean biotech scene and what opportunities are out there for Western companies and Chinese companies looking to partner with Korean biopharmas. All of our podcasts are available at our website, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Music for all of our podcasts is provided by Kendall Square Orchestra 
which connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. 